Support for AHLA comes from ECG Management Consultants. For more information, visit ecgmc.com. Welcome. Uh, my name is Tony Koba. I'm a principal with ECG. Uh, I lead the evaluation services practice as well as a leader on the compensation design team. Uh, I appreciate all our listeners joining uh, for this podcast. Uh, we are uh, discussing the MPFS, Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, changes in how our healthcare clients are navigating those changes. I'm joined today by my two colleagues, uh, Alethea and Kelsey. Alethea will act as the overall moderator for the discussion and get uh, sort of the discussion going with both Kelsey and I. And I'll let my two colleagues introduce themselves, maybe starting with you, Kelsey. Sounds great. Hi, I'm Kelsey Jernigan. I'm a partner at K&L Gates. Um, my practice is healthcare regulatory, and we primarily represent institutional healthcare providers. I do a lot of work with Stark and the anti-kickback statute and physician compensation plans generally. Thanks, Tony and, and Kelsey. My name is Alethea Lari. I'm Associate General Counsel at Honor Health in the Arizona market. Um, I am thrilled to be able to pick the brains of uh, two experts in the field today. We certainly have, have struggled, I think, as in-house counsel with our physician compensation. Um, we were just starting to try and think about what are we going to do to pay our physicians in calendar year 2021 um, because productivity numbers visits just were, were crazy after COVID. Um, and then in August of 20, they sprung the new MPFS rule on us, which had the increase in RVUs for ENMs, decrease in the conversion factor. Um, mm -hmm. They mitigated that a little bit. We were trying to figure out um, what we might do with that. Uh, and then, you know, we come along into 2022 and we've got another conversion factor decrease. Um, they did about 3% of mitigation. They delayed sequester for a few months. Um, but to be honest, from an in-house counsel perspective, I, and I'm sure others, really, I don't think even have a, a, a grasp on on responding to what COVID data looks like, um, let alone what it looks like in terms of uh, the changes that we've seen in the physician fee schedule. So um, it's definitely been a challenging time for those of us in-house that deal with physician compensation, um, especially on the heels of, of COVID and everything we were dealing with with that. So um, I'm going to jump right in and take advantage of your expertise. And so my understanding from my colleagues in the in-house world is that there's really sort of a split in how systems are using the physician fee schedule. Some are using the 2020 fee schedule for compensation. Um, others are adopting 2021 for compensation, but then they're making adjustments to comp rates to try and maintain historical comp. Um, just wanted to get a, a kind of feel from the two of you, what you're seeing with your clients and what they're doing with that physician fee schedule. Um, and maybe Tony, you could start. Yeah, uh, so we, we completely understand you know, um, or try to understand all the internal uh, chaos that our clients are going through um, because of COVID. And, uh, you know, a lot of times as a uh, consulting firm, the, one of the first questions we get asked is just, you know, where do we stack up relative to others on, on chal this challenging uh, change? And, the, the, you know, depending on how you look at it, the good news is, is that, you know, 
uh, like minority of, of, of health systems have actually implemented the new uh, fee schedule. So uh, ECG conducted a pulse, a recent pulse survey um, and, and roughly a third of those organ healthcare organizations did implement the new updated fee schedule. Um, the remaining two thirds uh, are really split um, half uh, uh, plan to um, update uh, likely this year, the other half um, uh, are, are still on, undetermined and, and potentially looking to do it in 2023 and make those changes. So there, so so the good news is, is that you're not alone. That you know many of uh, of your colleagues uh, across the country are still sort of a lack of a term kicking the can down the road just because of some of the other challenges you're currently facing. Um, and I, maybe I'll give a little perspective of, of of that third that actually did implement the new uh, fee schedule essentially did it to, to be budget neutral. So they would, you know, decrease the, the payout rates or increase work RV thresholds. Um, there might be some temporary comp guarantees, but ultimately the, the, the goal was is to, to change the levers of compensation to, to sort of uh, be budget neutral overall or, or, or potentially a slight increase in market uh, compensation. That's exactly been our experience with, with our hospital clients in particular. Um, most of our clients have not implemented a new change, or as Tony mentioned, the changes that they've implemented have been to um, maintain budget neutrality. So, you know, like as you mentioned, it's been chaos in the healthcare industry during the pandemic, and um, everyone has been focused on COVID, and these changes did not come with a lot of notice. And so, you know, most of our hospital clients have perform short-term solutions. And so um, they've either delayed the transition altogether or they've assessed the compensation per work RVU um, in a way that, you know, doesn't implement these major changes to compensation plans. Um, I think that's probably coming in the future, but, you know, we've just not been able to um, work it in, as, as you know, Alethea, in your experience with everything else that's going on in the industry. Right. Well, it, it is always nice to know that we're not standing alone on an island. Um, I was talking with a colleague of mine the other day uh, at a conference, and she said one of the best things about the conference is um, just hearing that other people are struggling with the same things that we're, we're struggling with. So, um, it, it's very good to hear that. Well, uh, uh, go ahead, Tony. Another, probably an important thing to mention as well is when I talk about the, the third that have implemented the fleet schedule, a lot of times that's mostly around their employed provider networks. Um, if you have professional service arrangements, we're seeing a lot of those just because the agreements are in place and they're not up for renewal that you know, those are left still untouched, even for those that implemented uh, the new fee schedule for their employee providers. And ultimately that also leads to you know, additional challenges, right? Because you're sort of monitoring both, kind of both, uh, feeding both worlds, right? Uh, between the right. two fee schedules. Yeah, and, it, and at least I know for us in some specialties on some of those professional services arrangements, um, we, we had to do some interesting things in terms of uh, comp to get coverage um, with with a lot of the COVID surges. So um, that was just another layer, I think, of complexity that was in there. Um, but I, I guess one of my my next big questions, right? We're we're lawyers, um, 
Some of us went to law school, so we never had to deal with numbers again. Um, but I think in general, we like to leave the numbers to uh, to some other people. And I'm I'm really we've got a third implementing. We've got half planning to maybe implement this year. Half haven't determined what they're going to do. I know that doesn't add up to 100%, but you get my point. Um, you know, people are trying to maintain budget neutrality. Um, we had to offer some, uh, you know extra dollars in some specialties for coverage during COVID. Um, and, and what is this going to do to the next set of comp data that, that comes out from the various um, survey uh, companies? I, I just don't know how that's, what that's going to look like. And I'm wondering if we're even going to have reliable, comparable data. Yeah. Yeah, we we at ECG agree. Um, we hope, thankfully, we're your numbers, your numbers people, so it can help. Um, it might be helpful just to set the stage again, just remind uh, folks about how the surveys, you know, or what the makeup is. So, you know, if if the current survey year that we're all using is 2021, um, and we're going to likely get the 2022 surveys again over the next few months, the update. But the the survey year legs, right? So the the 2021 surveys uses 2020 data. The 2020 surveys using 2019 data. So there's there's a lag there. And so the current surveys that we're utilizing, um, you know, thankfully don't have the, the Medicare Registration Fee Schedule changes yet because it's using 2020 data, but uh, not thankfully it has the COVID effect, right? So the, the data is not reliable because a lot of physicians had seen guarantees and compensation, but their productivity dropped due to, to, to COVID and, and freeze on, on seeing patients. And ultimately what you find is that many of our comp models are based on you know, conversion factors. So the, the conversion factors have gone up significantly. So they're, they're not that reliable for using the 2021 survey. So um, a lot of organizations uh, have continued to, to use the 2020 surveys. And again, as I, I mentioned earlier, if only a third have implemented the new fee schedule, it means two thirds have not. So majority of our, our clients and, and, and health systems are working with continue to use the 2021 surveys and, and, and likely are leg adjusting those forward to provide some level of market adjustments to, to draw some comparables uh, between the, the specialties. And so what we're finding is that, you know, when we look at healthcare systems, what they're doing is a lot of times they're using both 2020 surveys as well as 2021. And one of the things I should comment quickly of, of, of why the 2021 survey is still useful is that the actual compensation per FTE numbers are fairly reliable. It's just any of the benchmarks that include the productivity elements to it, um, like comp work RV or comp to collections are not really all that reliable. So um, that is why clients would use the 2021 surveys in addition to the 2020 uh, surveys uh, as well. And I think our experience, you know, a lot of our hospital clients are, are reaching out to evaluators more frequently um, because of this uncertainty. And so, you know, whereas previously they may have just, you know, referenced survey data, now there's that caution and uncertainty based on the COVID effect that Tony described. And, you know, we're just more hesitant to, to make that decision on our own. And so um, a lot of clients are just excluding the 2020 numbers altogether because it's not reliable. Um, in their experience, they they paid over what you know, they relied on the COVID waivers to pay in excess of what they typically would have to make sure that they were fully staffed. So, you know, some clients think that the 2020 
compensation numbers aren't even as reliable in their personal experience. Productivity certainly is lower um, because of the freeze on elective cases in many cases and, you know, just lower volumes during COVID. So we're seeing, um, you know, clients that, that do reference survey data exclude the 2020 numbers in the 2021 survey um, or, you know, implement a rolling average of multiple years, kind of as you, you referenced, Tony, looking at both. Um, but more often than not, I think we're just, you know, going to the experts and, and referencing um, engaging evaluators to give us the, the true opinion that we should look at. Yeah, and, I, and I'll add that, you know, I talked about 2021, I didn't really talk about 2022 in, in the future. So the challenges then obviously are going to be that COVID didn't go away, right, in 2021 and into 2022. So now when our 2022 survey using 2021 data, it's going to have both the, you know, continue to have the COVID effect uh, in particular markets, as well as now we're going to have this sort of, you know, uh, two sort of divergent data sets where we're going to have organizations, that, the third that didn't move to the, the new fee schedule and the, uh, all the all the others that have not. And so, uh, you know, survey firms like ours will likely uh, report different data sets depending on the fee schedules that were used to at least have some level of reliable information. And um, as you know, when we start separating data sets, again, it just affects the sample size and the way we affect, affect sample size also can have uh, more variability from comparing from prior years, right? So um, even the 2022 surveys are going to be coming out, there is going to be some challenges there as we sort of look at multiple data sets that are going to be reported that are different than the traditional just national regional type data sets that we would report on. Kelsey, I think you brought up a good point that I'd like to talk just a little bit more about. Um, for example, at, at our system, we key the use of evaluators based on some benchmark data, right? Um, if we're bringing in a physician and we're going to offer them a base salary that is, you know, under the 25th percentile of the data that's out there, we, we feel like we're in pretty good shape, right? Um, as, as long as they're working and producing some RVUs, we, we feel pretty comfortable there. Um, but, but those benchmarks or those kind of cutoff points or things we've used to determine when we need to send something out to have it looked at, I, I wonder if those are sufficiently safe anymore for us in-house. So for example, we might've said at 50th percentile, we need additional documentation of um, the, the need for this specialty or the need for this physician. Um, at 75th percentile, we might've said, you've got to send it out for a fair market value opinion. Um, if we were proposing to compensate um, you know, near the 90th, we might have said we need all that additional information. We need a fair market value opinion from a, an independent evaluator. And we need um, you know, a special approval, right? Some kind of a committee approval to look at this to make sure it's right. But if those benchmarks are so loose now, or you're seeing a lot of people just going to evaluators you know, more often than they had been, um, are we going to miss the, the ball, um, the, the movement in the community by not doing that? And do we really need to be sending more out to be safe um, and protected if, 
against a, the government or someone coming in and saying we weren't paying a fair market value? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question. And I think, you know, I always look back to the the stark requirements to be fair market value. Um, and the recent commentary from CMS was incredibly helpful on that point in saying you don't have to have a third party valuation to prove that something is fair market value. So that that's incredibly helpful. Um, I think it's it's likely just a temporary confusion as a result of all these factors that we've talked about in terms of you know how safe are these benchmarks. Um, and, and a lot of what our clients are going to evaluators for in this context is the, the overall compensation plan. So maybe not the, the single physician with a professional services agreement um, or you know, an employment salary that's below the 25th, um, but generally structuring the plan, particularly when you know, we're looking at a full specialty, um, the base salary, what, what our worked RVUs is that base salary threshold based on um, tiered productivity compensation. You know, are we setting those tiers correctly? Um, that's where we've seen valuators be incredibly helpful in translating the effects of COVID and the fee schedule changes and, you know, the last two years of low volumes, you know, reliance on COVID waivers, all these factors that we've talked about. Um, you know, we've really seen our clients relying on valuators in the big picture compensation plan structures. And how does it complicate structures? Um, you know, if you're starting up on a new specialty and you're starting, right, the first time you've looked at any of this is, is now um, with this data that's sort of all over the place um, or potentially all over the place. Is anyone seeing compensation structures those, for those compensation plans starting to change? I mean, I think we've seen a lot of, um, you know, base plus productivity incentive and some quality in there as well. Um, is anyone starting to try and get away from that? Yeah, I, I would say that um, there has been a significant increase in demand for I would say wholesale compensation uh, redesign engagements where um, because of, you know, the nuances of every time CMS changes the fee schedule, it impacts compensation to really de-emphasize the work RVU and start emphasizing other areas like, you know, value-based care. And, you know, as CMS is, is moving towards that and, um, you know, lack of better term, again, the disruptors of healthcare, right? The more non-traditional uh, providers, um, uh, networks out there, they're really maximizing um, the, the, the income or profitability from moving fee-for-service revenue into value-based care revenue streams. And uh, our, our more traditional uh, uh, healthcare system provider networks are, are, are starting to do the same and taking advantage of that. And so when you think about the compensation methodology, it's, it is sort of de-emphasizing the work RVUs and start, you know, looking and maybe Alethea to sort of answer your question just about sort of, you know, what's really true north. I mean, remember that, as I said, the compensation per FT benchmarks themselves are actually fairly reliable. Um, you know, and it really is a good good test to, to the market, <clears throat> right, to be able to recruit and retain the, that arms like negotiation between provider and health system on what they're worth as a provider. And so those, those numbers, and so using that compensation 
and sort of to sort of set what your target comp value would be, you sort of work backwards and value the various components. And so there are, of, of the overall pool of compensation for total cash, you might say that you know 60% of that should still be tied to sort of work RV productivity. Uh, and let's just pick on primary care, for example, not be measured on work RVUs. Uh, but maybe the remaining of you know 40% is tied to, to capitation or, or panel size, right? And sort of start measuring. Um, how you do things differently, and of course, have other quality metrics and things built into that. You know, I was just kind of using loose percentages, but um, but we definitely, I mean, absolutely, the answer is we are absolutely seeing that right now. There isn't a comp design engagement that we are not actively on right now. That the value based comp discussion isn't happening, and 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 there's going to be some level of pay that's not just tied to RVUs. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, I think just in the context of value based care. We are, our clients are moving towards value-based care. Um, I think, you know, some systems that have an existing value-based organizational framework, such as an ACO or a clinically integrated network, you know, they've of course had a head start on implementing some of the new models that uh, the industry is thinking about. Um, the Stark and anti-kickback statute exceptions and waivers for value-based care that were finalized um, in effective in 2021 have really opened up a lot of opportunities um, for hospitals and, you know, all sorts of healthcare providers to take advantage of. We haven't seen a huge shift yet towards um, some of the significant and full financial risk models that, you know, are an option under the new exceptions and safe harbors. I think a lot of that is just based on how complex the requirements are. So the, the value-based exceptions under Stark do not fully overlap with the value-based safe harbors under the anti-kickback statute. And so um, health systems that are at the beginning of their value-based journey um, without the organizational framework already in place are trying to figure out how do we structure this um, in a way that, that we could satisfy both if needed, um, you know, approaching physician compensation conversations with, you know, the discussion about taking on financial risk, and that is newer for many physicians. Um, and so figuring out, you know, how to, how to structure financial risk in the physician compensation area is new. Um, I'm interested, Tony, if, if you all have um, structured many um, you know, risk-based arrangements yet and, and how, how you've seen your clients um, proposing those models. Real quick yeah. before Tony answers that, um, I just have to put a plug in for our wonderful government who keeps us all uh, with a lot of job security by, <laughs> you know, creating exceptions that don't match each other right. um, and, and giving us this complex world that we have to um, to navigate, but but Tony, I am very interested to hear your your thoughts on that because I I've sort of wondered is this going to push us to value based care faster? Yeah, I mean we we have a similar experience to Kelsey where uh, the movement hasn't been as quick as one would think because we do believe those those changes in the regulations was probably the most significant thing to happen to us and at least in in, in healthcare in in, a, in a quite a long time. Um, and, and really allowing a, a better opportunity to align, you know, health system goals with with physician 
um, compensation and, and maximizing, you know, uh, increased quality, lower cost, um, and just better overall care and access to, to patients. Um, but because of the resource constraints of COVID, right, just, just like all the, the, the two thirds of the organizations that are kicking the can down the road with the Medicare physician fee schedule changes, is to Kelsey's point, these, 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 the, the laws are, are very difficult to navigate. Um, and, and ultimately are, are also likely probably not taking advantage of them as quickly as, as we probably say you should, right? Because there really is opportunity there um, to, to have different and, and, and better um, reimbursement streams that actually provide a, a different source of, of, of profitability to, to the health systems or medical groups. Um, but the, the question that, you know, Kelsey had asked us around, you know, how, how we're structuring those Again, you know, when we do a comp design plan, you know, from a from a philosophical standpoint, you know, we want to make sure again that we're tying the levers of provider compensation to the levers of reimbursement. So, if you're still predominantly fee for service, um, we're going to want to make sure we continue to have a productivity measure uh, or a component into that comp plan. However, as you move your reimbursement over time to value, you're going to want to change the levers of provider compensation, and so. Um, Kelsey, we, we, we continue from a design standpoint, want to target comp based on the surveys, again, looking at that comp rev T number, because right, no one's giving it, uh, our, our clients more money, right? There, there's no more, re, there's not huge increases in reimbursement that's coming in. So that's really the same sort of framework we say when it comes to physician compensation, just because you're moving in a value doesn't mean it's additive, right? It's still part of the overall compensation pie. Uh, uh, that's being provided to the physicians. And so it's just really how you allocate that pie, those, those dollars into the various components. So, you know, obviously if it's fee for service and volume, you want to continue to look at work RVUs. Um, but again, you know, it's kind of hard to have feet in both worlds. So, you know, a lot of times we will recommend pushing towards, you know, start measuring panels appropriately, um, especially, especially for primary care. And, and aligning those goals with those reimbursement uh, changes. But yeah, absolutely, we, we've def we definitely worked in that space. We are working in that space, but to your point, Kelsey, it is slower than we probably would have, have thought we would see, have seen so far. Do you think this is gonna create two, um, two models that may compete in some market areas, one market, one market um, or system in the market sort of stays with a non-value based and, and you know, a base salary and very productivity based that the physicians have seen and are comfortable with. Um, and another that's moving to this value based um, care with, with the physicians sharing in some financial risk. I think definitely that that's a great point, Alethea. And, you know, that is likely where we're going in the short term. Um, while everyone is figuring it out. And I know we keep coming back to that, but it, it's so new and um, organizations are approaching it differently. And I think it's just going to take some time for, um, you know, physicians to understand, you know, what, what is the value-based model? What effort is required? How does it change their practice? Um, and, you know, are these value-based compensation arrangements how does the compensation net out ultimately? And so I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the market changes and whether or not, um, you know, hospital systems and clinically iterated networks can structure compensation in a way that, you know, everyone's satisfied and, and it's competitive and, you know, that the, the traditional payment models 
um, are competing as well. Yeah, I, I don't know how to help physicians understand this um, because it's so complicated. And quite frankly, I'm not even sure, you know, on the business side, we understand it all yet. Right. And I mean, I, I, I still have discussions with physicians about the inverse relationship between their productivity and their dollars per RVU. Um, I, I still can't always get them to believe me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that the more productive you are, the more the less you tend to, to work to earn per RVU. Um, right. I don't know how we're gonna how to have this conversation with them. Um, and uh, I, I don't know that I anticipate either of you have the magic um, you know, formula for that, but any thoughts on how we we talk to our physicians about where this is going and what it's going to really mean for them and um, how to get them comfortable with it? Yeah, I mean, I think as I was saying earlier, I mean, again, making sure from a high level standpoint, you sort of have them understand that, you know, the, the, it's important to know that the health system is not receiving a significant increase in comp and, you know, really it's it's around you know, how the payers are moving away from fee-for-service to value and how that has to align with their comp plan. And, you know, and, and that's the traditional sense, right? And under what, you know, Kelsey has brought up with just these, these the changes in uh, starking and kickback um, and into value, there is actually an opportunity where you could win that, you know, in compensation that doesn't necessarily have to be fair market value. But again, for those, those health systems are still going to have to probably have some review around the traditional type of services the physician would provide even outside of those exceptions of, of needing to be fair market value under, under those value-based uh, entities. But, you know, it's, again, it's just, I think, I think the simple answer, I guess I would say is when you're, when you're doing the comp design change, we would just recommend, you know, it's, it's, it's getting physicians away from thinking that, you know, that their compensation is linear based on volume, you know, right. And it's, it's starting to set aside or fixing compensation that's tied to other things. And even if it's simply a base salary, um, you set a base salary and then you just set some good performance expectations around that base salary. What does the organization expect of that provider just to be a, a, a good value uh, good value partner to the organization and having them start thinking of other things other than work RVUs to have that base salary, right? Those are, those are sort of the ways we'd say simply to start those, con- those conversations. I think, you know, the value-based framework that, you know, CMS and the OIG has put out in the exceptions and safe harbors, I think it's helpful to just remind everyone that it's not just a hospital-physician relationship anymore. And, you know, the whole concept is to have value-based arrangements and participants that are more expansive than just the physician and the hospital. And so, you know, the substantial downside risk and the full financial risk um, and several of these models require that there's a payer participant. Um, and and it's, it's including the acute care provider and the post-acute care provider and the um, other participants across the healthcare spectrum. And so, you know, involving everybody on the front end to figure out how can we move to value-based care? What are the populations that we're looking at? What are some of the quality metrics? Um, I think, you know, instead of just a top-down approach from hospital to physician, this is what we're going to pay and it's based on your volume, um, I think the the goal is to move towards a more collaborative model and, and 
you know, structure financial relationships accordingly. Uh, maybe, maybe we can um, get them to start teaching some business and uh, start in any kickback in medical school. <laughs> we can prepare <laughs> the next um, the next group coming out. Um, do you? Uh, we're we're a little far away from the physician fee schedule, and I will bring us back there. But um, I just had another thought as we're thinking through that. Do do either of you think that we're going to see more vertical integration um, in in the the healthcare um, provider market? It's a, it's a really interesting question because I think before some of these changes, I would have said, we you know, a, a couple of years ago was the first time, right, that more physicians were employed um, than independent um, in, in the market. And, but now we're starting to see, you know, maybe again, we always joke in healthcare, right? It's secular, there's sort of changes that kind of go back and forth and swing. You know, we are seeing a lot of independent groups that are growing and taking advantage of these reimbursement value-based care opportunities and uh, continue to recruit away from our traditional non-profit uh, or even for-profit healthcare delivery systems and and causing a bigger challenge around supply and demand of providers. And so it's a difficult question to answer because I actually feel like it's moving back towards where some some models are working for independence versus being employed at this point. And it's it's, it's becoming a challenge for, I mean, obviously, right, Alethea, for even you know, our, our, uh, our, our client partners where yeah. they're having issues retaining. It's it's interesting. Um, so I've worked in the Texas, Oklahoma, and Arizona markets, and it's it's interesting how different those markets were in terms of um, physician interest in employment. Um, and uh, and so I, I wonder. Um, I feel like Arizona is just sort of. With a very independent streak in Arizona, um, and so I think we're we're just sort of getting to where we have a lot of physician interest potentially in employment, um, and now these changes may may start moving that the other direction. And I wonder if that'll happen first in the markets where we've had a lot of physician employment and they're ready to to look at something else, or what that'll do to the Arizona market where we're just sort of getting into that. Um, so, uh, Kelsey, did you have any, any more thoughts on that vertical yeah. integration and anything I you're think, seeing? I think we're still seeing a focus on employment, you know, hospital employment or, um, you know, if independent larger medical practices, I, I think we, it's not as common to see the solo practitioner and the small groups. Um, we're seeing a lot more consolidation into you know, among medical practices into larger, you know, multi-state national practices, um, or just, you know, within a region, just larger medical groups, if not employment. I think that's still the, the common model for us. That's a great point. Yeah, you're right. It, there, it, regardless, there's still more consolidation. Um, you're not seeing the, the small practices anymore. Those, those are continuing to, to, to be less common. I guess um, maybe to to sort of bring us back to that to the physician fee schedule. Um, 
do you see a time when the fee schedule data starts to feel in reliability and the rest of that the way it felt before COVID? Um, or do you think the data moving forward is just always going to have this, um, the fact that there's so many different things going on in the market um, that you're going to have to do more research, more parsing of the data to get to what the norms are for the way you are compensating physicians, right? For example, um, you know, if you're if you've moved really embraced value-based care, should you be at some point, will we be comparing ourselves to other people who are have embraced value-based care? And it might look different for people who are just employing physicians um, on a uh, you know, a standard sort of base salary with some productivity in it. Um, I, I know market is is all of those things, and the government I don't think is going to let us parse it down that way. But but are are we as in house and you all as you're advising your clients going to start really parsing down that way? Um, and and again, I think back to that first question I asked. There's a lot to unpack I think in here, but are, are we ever going to feel about the data like we did before COVID. Yeah, I mean, I I think we're gonna always have a significant concerns over the productivity elements of the data, uh, just because there is a lot of moving pieces where there are these fee schedule changes, and those 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 will stabilize over time. And we, I mean, we generally believe probably by the 24, 25 surveys that that, that will be stabilized. But as we move uh, these comp plans away from work RVUs and start looking at, you know, panel size, you know, there's going to be different types of measures of, of production that will flow through and, and have to be reported in the surveys. Um, and we have a, we have a value-based care survey here at ECG um, that provides some, some of that information. Um, but, you know, it, 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 there is going to be, again, less focus on the production, but more focus on the toll comp. I would say this, I would say, you know, a lot of times, you know, again, we're a, a consulting firm, so we get the question a lot, like, what's the market doing? What's whatever? What is everyone else doing elsewhere? But at the same time, you, you know, our, our, you know, from where my fair market value had, I would say, you know, look internally to like, you know, how competitive do you need to be with pay, right? As far as recruiting, retaining your providers, what's happening in your local market as far as where physicians, you know, are seeking employment and at what level of pay, and then also balancing with financial affordability. So it's looking at, you know, what is your overall investment per physician FTE? And is that investment reasonable? And sort of balancing both those sides, what we have to pay as well as what our overall investment is. And does that investment make sense from a fair market value commercial reasonableness perspective? So a lot of it is, is just sort of, again, starting high level and kind of building, going backwards and building out what, what the methodology has to be to pay for that target compensation. Yeah, and that I'm fascinated to see where the um, survey data goes in the future as more organizations, hospitals, you know, the healthcare industry moves towards value-based care. Um, I think it's it's great and interesting that that ECG has a value-based survey. I think that will likely be more common, um, and just generally, it's helpful from a, a stark and anti-kickback perspective now that. Um, there's a little bit more flexibility in keeping compensation within the fair market value range in the concept of, of value-based framework. Um, you know, of course, 
I think it, it's un the unknown territory um, in terms of provider compensation, taking on risk, and what that's ultimately going to look like in our, our physician compensation structures. Well, I think we're getting uh, towards the end of our time. So I want to um, ask each of you if you have any sort of parting thoughts uh, for, for our audience on um, physician fee schedule or, or any of the other sort of um, areas that it touches that we've talked about today. Um, Kelsey, let me start with you. I think my, my number one parting thought is let's hope that the major changes from CMS have uh, have come out and we are we're not adjusting again with the next physician schedule. I think um, you know our hospital clients and healthcare provider clients need some time to implement these these changes that have already come out um, and you know value based care and focus on telehealth. I think I think we've got our hands full. So um, hopefully we can sit with these changes, implement them before another major change comes out from CMS. Uh, from your mouth, right? <laughs> Tony? Yeah, I mean, I would just want to comfort those that are listening and say, if you haven't done anything, you're, you're not alone. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of sit back. It's a good opportunity to kind of figure out, you know, where you want to be, you know, some sort of what your philosophy is and and take the time, you know, over the next uh, couple of years as, as the surveys stabilize um, to sort of figure out how you want to pay your providers. And, 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 and I, I guess I just want to let people know they have time, right? Just, you know, relieve some of that anxiety. Um, obviously, not the lawyer on the, on the call, and, but as evaluator, I'm making sure you continue to have good fair market value comp and, and internal processes. But, um, but you, you have time to, to, to align your compensation to, to some of the levers or force changes that are out there. Well, I want to thank you both um, for sharing your expertise with um, me and everyone who listens to the podcast. It is incredibly helpful um, uh, because as in-house, what I can say, I think echoes what, what both of you said in terms of sort of the parting thoughts, which are there have just, it's just been so much and um, trying to navigate that is is difficult and it's difficult for multiple reasons, but having good partners um, that we can talk with and rely on and who can help us work through what we see uh, is just so important. And um, I, I, we appreciate that you all are out there uh, and I, I am, I uh, just want to express that again. Um, I do want to um, conclude by saying thank you again to um, Kelsey and Tony for joining us uh, and to ECG for sponsoring this podcast. I think um, it's definitely uh, been some good information for me, hopefully for all of you that are listening. Um, and I am sure that there will be more to come in terms of discussions and, and things from AHLA as we all navigate through what this looks like for us. So thank you again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. 
To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.